If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 545. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page. Find all those social media accounts at my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders and a free audiobook at the same title read by yours truly. Of course, all those social media accounts are at Brian McClanahan, so you can do it that way too. While you're there at brianmcclanahan.com, make sure you click on that support tab. You can throw a few pennies my way, get a book plate if you want. You can go to anchor.fm to support the show. You can click on that shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Uh, you can get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. Also go to, to mcclanahanacademy.com, great way to support the show. You can buy classes there. If you like this podcast, you'll like that stuff. You've already heard the ad for that. So head on over there. Again, free of charge to enroll. You get the free class when you do enroll. 10 Myths of American History. And as always, share the podcast around on social media. Rate it wherever you get your podcasts. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. Give me those show suggestions. I want you to tell me what you want to hear. And this is a listener-generated episode. It comes from a question. Uh, the question generally was, look, I'm interested in the 1800 election. I'm interested in Jeffersonian the Jeffersonian Revolution, this Republican Revolution of 1800. What can you tell me about that? What book should I read? Well, I'm going to tell you one book today, and I'm actually going to go through the introduction a little bit to this book because it's so good. The book is so good. And the title of the book is The Old Republicans. It's written by a guy named Norman Risjord. Norman Risjord, R-I-S-J-O-R-D. The Old Republicans by Norman Risjord. It was published in 1965. And it is a really good book, a solid history of this group of Jeffersonians. Now, there's others. I mean, look, Kevin Goodspin wrote a great book on uh, the on Virginia. Uh, I mean, that's a very good one. So there's other books out there. But I want to focus on this book and the introduction to this book because I think he says some really important things in this book. And if we're trying to get to the heart of political revolutions and transformative events in America, I don't think the 2021 election is going to be that. I don't think 1994 was that. I remember in 1994 when that election took place of sitting in my room and cheering it on. Yeah, you know, yeah, we're going to win. I remember it. I remember it very well and being very excited about it in that uh, November of 1994. Uh, being being very very excited about it, and uh, I was uh, you know undergraduate at the time, and I was really cheering that on. It was going to change everything, and then of course it didn't change anything. It's got the same corruption, same spending, all that stuff. I mean, we didn't really get much of anything. And of course, this this uh, ingrained, if they weren't already there, the neoconservatives and the Straussians, all that into the conservative movement. It created, it helped create Con Inc. Reagan did it. And then that Republican Revolution in 94 just put Con Inc. Con Inc. on steroids. It really did. 
So, but there is a revolution, a political revolution, 1800, that was transformative. And it's the Jeffersonian revolution because for 24 years, you had Jeffersonians in power. And more than that, their ideas, Jefferson's ideas on government and society, but more importantly on government, what the federal government should do, carried forward really up until about 1860. I mean, you had Jeffersonians in office up until Lincoln took office. And, of course, there are progressive historians who have made the case that Lincoln was, some, was somehow Jeffersonian. Now, he's a distorted version of Jefferson because he took that one part of it, the Declaration. Lincoln himself said that he was a Jeffersonian. He wasn't. Uh, but then you even had, after that, certain tenets of, of this Jeffersonian revolution still in place after that. We've completely eradicated that stuff now. When you read this, when you read what Norman Risdroyd was saying in 1965 about the revolution of 1800, really it begins in 1798 with an attempt to suppress votes, suppress free speech because they didn't want the other side to win. It was more an attempt to oppress free speech, you see. That was the point. I talked about this yesterday, about power. It's all about power. It's always about power. So Riz George says Jeffersonian democracy was a political movement that may be described as liberal, but not necessarily progressive. Carried to its logical conclusions, it was essentially negative. Fundamental to the political thought of the Jeffersonians was the compact theory of government with its corollaries of economy, simplicity, and severe limitations on the power of the central government. Though Jefferson's own faith in human nature lent an air of optimistic democracy to these ideas. In the hands of some of his followers, these doctrines became powerful engines of conservatism. And people have asked, you know, where is, what are the roots of conservatism? Well, Jeffersonianism. This is where Clyde Wilson says Jefferson was conservative. The old Republicans appeared as a reaction to the surge of nationalism that followed the War of 1812. But this group had ties and personal and political principle with both earlier and later conservative movements within the Republican Party. This is a study of the conservative wing of Jefferson's Republican Party, the men who took deeply to heart the compact theory of government and carried it to its logical conclusions. Since the old Republicans were mostly Southerners, this study includes also the development of Southern conservative thought into a self-conscious sectionalism. The old Republicans are thus the missing link in the conservative tradition between the Anti-Federalists of 1788 and the states' rights Southerners of the Jacksonian era. Now think about what he just said there. The Anti-Federalists were conservative, not radicals, not leftists. This is Gordon Wood's position that somehow, you know, these people were radical. That or Charles Beard that they were just all radicals. This is what I mean. What Rizdor is saying? No, no, those people were conservative, and then the states' rights Democrats were conservative. The conservative tradition in America is, in itself is a puzzling one. Scholars who attempt to define American conservatism in terms of the ideas of Edmund Burke are confounded by the fact that America never had an effective feudal aristocracy and abandoned the monarchy and, and the established church in the revolution. Instead, as Lewis Harsa so well demonstrates, the American political tradition was founded on the bourgeois, Puritan, and Lockean liberalism. Yet within the liberal tradition, it's, it is still possible to progress or stand still. As a working definition of American conservatism for the purposes of, his, of historical evaluation, I would suggest the following. A psychological resistance to change. A reluctance to adapt political programs to the felt needs of the times. To be sure, such a definition is pragmatic 
and relative and depends largely on the subjective evaluation of the historian. But it avoids the theoretical vagaries and confusion stemming from the effort to link conservatism with Burke or medieval feudalism. And it, all, and it is no more subjective than the populist interpretation of American history, popularized by such writers as Charles Beard or Vernon Parrington. There are, it is true, many similarities between the thought of the old Republicans and the philosophy of Edmund Burke. And John Randolph himself once acknowledged Burke to be the most important influence on his thought. Like Burke, the Southern conservatives based their political philosophy on a desire to preserve the traditions and supremacy of a Whiggish squirearchy. And they shared with him a reverence for traditional institutions, an opposition to King World, a distrust of human nature, and a pessimism toward the future that is characteristic of all conservatives. But in Burke, these predilections reinforced his veneration for the establishment. In the old Republicans, they fathered an anti-federalist distrust of power. Now, what's interesting about his position there and what he's actually saying is the anti-federalist distrust of power is actually an adherence to the traditions an adherence to the traditions of England. It still was the establishment in a way. It was the established ancient constitutions these people all have been born under. What the anti-federalists and the Jeffersonians said is we're resisting resisting the innovators. We're resisting Hamilton the innovator, the machinations. We don't want that. That's not the American mind. That's not the American experience. We don't want what he's selling. The old Republicans were liberals in the classic sense of the term, liberty from government, freedom of the individual. Burke flirted for a time with liberalism, e.g. reform of the royal household, but his preference for an organic state and established institutions won and out and, in Lord Acton's phrase, made the first of liberals the first of conservatives. The Burke to whom Randolph bore tribute was the Burke who defended Dunning's resolution, not the Burke of the Reflections. Significantly, the old Republicans voiced no criticism of France until 1806, when it became evident that Napoleon had perverted the idealism of the French Revolution to serve the ends of French imperialism. In the 1790s, Randolph, like many young Republicans, used the French calendar, signed his letters Citizen, and approved of the writings of Tom Paine. The old Republicans were, not heir, were, were the heirs not of Edmund Burke, but of the philosophies of the Enlightenment. They broke with Jefferson not because he was a liberal, but because he was not liberal enough. Now, that's interesting, um, and I, I, I could quibble with Rizdroid a little bit here. Um, when you look at John Taylor of Caroline, he's saying, no, no, we abandoned all this stuff pretty early on when it came to when we figured out that what we were actually doing here was undermining our own positions. This was going to be bad news for us. It is nevertheless possible to characterize the old Republicans as conservatives, even while denying the connection with Edmund Burke. They were conservative because they sought to apply the doctrines of the physiocrats long after they had become obsolete. They founded their philosophy on the assumption that agriculture was the only secure economic basis for society. They would have solved the problem of marketing farm products by relying on foreign merchants or at most tolerating the direct trade, the export of surplus staples. Ideally, society for them was a tempered feudalism, a hierarchical hierarchical structure of mutual obligations and responsibilities in which the Ownership of land was a prerequisite for political or social position. Politically, they accepted the physiocratic doctrines that agriculture was the cornerstone of freedom and that a free society could flourish only in a small state. They agreed with the dictum of the Virginian George Mason that there, quote, never was a government over a very extensive country without destroying the liberties of the people. 
His physiocratic assumptions reinforced by the anti-federalist legacy of states' rights as a weapon for preserving local powers and personal liberties. The smaller the unit of government, the less the possibility of usurpation and the less harm that could be wrought by an occasional usurper. But this anti-federalist fear of power, healthy when applied to the defense of a liberal republic against, against tyranny, led them to oppose all possible action by the central government. Liberalism was to become the predominant intellectual current in the 19th century. In the hands of, a, of the Jacksonians, it was even progressive. But the old Republicans used it to defend an 18th century society and a colonial agrarian economy in an age that was witnessing the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. Now, it's interesting that he brings up uh, Jackson here and the progressivism of it. This is Schlesinger. This is his position. Uh, you could find certainly some of that in the Jacksonians. There were certainly progressives in that and how they viewed things. But um, the old Republicans were the conservatives. The old Republicans can be identified as conservatives on other grounds as well. Because they favored government by landed gentlemen, they opposed the extension of the franchise, the propertyless, in any effort to give more political weight to the populist West. John Taylor of Caroline based his whole philosophic edifice on a landholding gentry. Randolph, Littleton, Waller, Taswell, and Benjamin Watkins Lee led the fight against ballot box democracy in the Virginia Constitutional Convention of 1829. Nathaniel Macon uh, silently opposed the suffrage movement in North Carolina that culminated in the Constitutional Convention of 1835. The old Republicans were conservative, finally because they failed to recognize the importance of the force of nationalism and its impact on the American people. Nationalism had a profound influence on the foreign policy of Jefferson and Madison, and the Louisiana Purchase, the West Florida Controversy, and the War of 1812. After the war, it was the biggest single factor in shaping domestic programs. The old Republicans at first ignored the phenomenon and then tried to obstruct its influence. This is why I talk about nationalism all the time on this program. I have for years, because it still is a problem. It's a problem because the one-people mentality is destructive because it leads to the proposition nation myth and all of that. I mean, this is where you have to get to the root of it. Identifying the old Republicans as conservatives does not imply that they were the only conservatives in the period. There are as many varieties of, conserva as, of conservatism as there are sets of values worth conserving, but there are essential differences between the conservatism of John Taylor of Caroline and that of a Fisher Ames, George Cabot, or Chancellor Kent. The Federalists preferred a strong central government as the best agency for defending the values they held sacred security of property, political stability, respect for religion. The Southern conservatives were convinced that a consolidated political state would be manipulated in undesirable directions by a majoritarian democracy. And they were right. He doesn't say that. That's what I say. They felt that the best defense against the threat of a nationalist, industrialized democracy was to retain a decentralized government in which the way, their way of life could be defended from, liberal, from local bastions of gentlemanly rule. The Federalist system that thus represented a neo-mercantilist threat to American liberalism. In its foreign policy and measures of, of domestic repression, it represented an early phase of the conservative reaction engendered in the Western world by the Jacobin tendencies of the French Revolution, a reaction characterized after 1815 as the Age of Metternich. In opposition to the system, the Republican Party developed its basic tenets, preoccupation with executive direct, uh, dis discretion, the size of government, taxes, armies, and navies, the principles of 1798, to which the old Republicans adhered throughout their history. That principles of 1798 is essential to understanding what's happening here. There would be no revolution of 1800 without 1798. There would be no revolution of 1800 without the Alien and Sedition Acts. 
without nullification, without the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions. It would not exist. And those of us that still champion these things, we're the people like the 10th Amendment Center, the Abbeville Institute, this podcast, some libertarians, some on the right. And these are the people that still do this. We're the heirs of these people. Politically speaking, the election of Jefferson in 1800 brought a fresh breath of liberalism to the United States. Jefferson provided a new direction in the fiscal system of the government, a democratic attitude toward the press and the judiciary, and the first steps toward separation of business and government. But as Southern conservatives within his own party, he did not carry his program far enough. He neither sought constitutional amendments to prevent a future sedition law, nor did he instigate a direct attack on the symbol of the federal system, the Bank of the United States. In short, the nationalism of the Federalists was assimilated by Jefferson and Madison and given only a new direction, resulting in the purchase of Louisiana, the acquisition of West Florida, and the War of 1812. The enthusiastic support Republicans gave to the Louisiana Purchase stands in sharp contrast to the explosion that resulted from the effort to obtain West Florida in 1806. Southern conservatives were willing to cooperate in legitimate expansion, particularly when it served their agrarian society, but they developed a puritanical aversion to the seamy side of nationalist expansion. John Randolph's schism, to be sure, was largely a personal vendetta dictated by his personal revulsion against the Yazoo frauds and a nearly irrational fear of Madison's influence in the administration. But Randolph hoped for open support from the conservative wing and was bitterly disappointed when he failed to get it. Despite its failure, due in part to Randolph's own eccentricities, the quid schism was the manifestation of conservative discontent. So this gets into these kind of these terms, quids, the tertium quids, the others, the conservatives. This is a group that had it was a faction in Congress that had a lot of political sway. And if you read this book, you figure out who these people are. Now, I don't want to focus on uh, too much. I mean, he gets in this introduction, he gets into some of the specific history of the period. Uh, but he does say this. He says, although the quids were an ineffectual and hopelessly outnumbered faction, the defection throws considerable light on the later history of the Republican Party. John Randolph and the West Florida controversy was the first prominent Republican to criticize Napoleon openly, the first to realize clearly the extent to which France, which in France the sense of Republican destiny had degenerated into rank chauvinism. The suspicion of the motives of France tended to reinforce their skepticism of the Jeffersonian policy of commercial retaliation against England. More concerned than Jefferson for the economic interests of the South, the Quids refused to sacrifice the export trade in Southern staples on the altar of national honor. Just as the Southern conservatives passed on the torch of states' rights to John C. Calhoun a quarter of a century later, the arguments of the Quids against the Non-Intercourse Acts and the embargo laid the theoretical foundations for the long period of mutual friendship between the Southern planter and the British manufacturer. So that is an important thing to think about. When you get forward to the 1860s, who were the who was the South trying to persuade to support them? Well, the British. Why? Because they exported cotton. And the British cotton mills needed Southern cotton. At least that's what Southerners thought. Of course, the British were then just going to get it from Egypt. They didn't care. And you had Queen Victoria on the throne. And Queen Victoria and Prince Albert were not interested in, in supporting anything that had to do with slavery in any way. And so they rejected recognition of the South. Of course, uh, Albert would eventually would die during the war, but regardless, the queen was not going to do it, and she had a considerable amount of influence in the government. He says, after the humiliating defeat of James Monroe in the presidential election of 1808 demonstrated the weakness of the quids, 
The nature of Southern conservatism underwent a subtle change. The Randolph Schism actually embraced most Southern conservatives. I'm sorry, embarrassed most Southern conservatives, excuse me. For it brought all critics under suspicion that, and placed a premium on party regularity. After the election of Southern conservatives eagerly returned to the fold, leaving Randolph in virtual isolation. After 1808, therefore, opposition to the administration is no longer a satisfactory criterion for conservatism. It must be defined instead as a refusal to respond positively to the needs of the nation, a definition which included, for a time, President Madison himself. And so he gets into some of the things about the Warhawks, uh, about the Chesapeake Affair, the War of 1812. And then he says, the few years following the war were again a period of transition for Southern conservatives. The young Republicans were in solid control of Congress, and the spirit of nationalism was in vogue. Only ten old Republicans voted against all three key measures of the new nationalism, the bank, the tariff, and internal improvements. The conservative reaction against the post-war nationalism appeared not in Congress, but in Virginia. and It was a delayed, delayed reaction that did not materialize until 1817. A variety of factors caused the revival of Southern conservatism in 1817. By then, the dimensions of the new nationalism had become clear, particularly with the threat of a nationalist nationwide network of roads and canals that would open up the new lands of the West. This threat coincided with an agricultural depression in the Upper South, which drained off population of the virgin lands of Alabama and Mississippi. The depression produced dissatisfaction with the protective tariff, as it did in South Carolina a decade later, and a battle with the Supreme Court over the right of appeal from state courts brought home for Virginians the scope of the nationalist threat to states' rights. Now, interestingly enough here, what has he not mentioned almost in this entire thing? He hasn't mentioned slavery. He hasn't mentioned slavery yet. Now, slavery was important for people. I mean, they used it. I mean, they understood that it was a major issue and how it was going to be dealt with, what they were going to do about it or not do about it, what federal power over this was. But 1817, we're not even talking about that. I mean, and all of this stuff still exists before we even got slavery into the into the political discussion. Interestingly enough, many of the old Republicans who appeared in 1817 were not old at all. The leadership of the faction fell upon relatively young men, such as Philip Pendleton Barber, elected as a war hawk in 1813, and John Tyler, who entered Congress in 1816 after serving several terms in the Virginia House of Delegates. Both Barber and Tyler are interesting folks. Um, I, I did a podcast, or I don't know if I did a podcast, I know I wrote a review of it, of uh, a book by William Belko on Philip Pendleton Barber. It's really good. He eventually served on the Supreme Court. I mean, he died while on the bench. That was a blow to the old Republicans. But Barber was put on the bench, and uh, he was on the he was on the uh, the Tawny Court, and I mean, just an important figure. And then, of course, John Totter, who I've said over and over again is the greatest president in American history. But he was the only guy who voted against the Force Bill, the only senator to do it. Amazingly enough. Many of the conservatives of the pre-war period had either died or, returned for, or retired from politics. Only Randolph and Macon had witnessed the political battles of the 1790s. Yet in the reaction of 1817, they gained new friends among men who had been loyal supporters of Jefferson and Madison and who had stood firm in support of the war, men such as Thomas Ritchie, editor of the influential, influential Richmond Inquirer, an individual that needs a book written about him. Thomas Ritchie and that Richmond Inquirer, it's such good stuff. And of course, that Richmond Junto is so good. I talk about them and how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America and that course in the book. you got to get that if you don't have that. The conservatism of the old Republicans after the war was partly a response to the shift of popular sentiment in Virginia and partly a matter of age and of 
a temperamental inability to adjust to the times. The result in any case was a conservative reaction in the Upper South that had repercussions in Tennessee and Georgia. During the first administration of James Monroe, the old Republicans, numbering about 30 in Congress, managed to stymie a federal program of internal improvements, conducted a major attack on the Second Bank of the United States, reduced taxes, and maintained a running criticism of the conduct of the War Department. Any positive activity on the part of the federal government was virtually impossible. The conjunction of the economic depression and the Missouri debate in 1819 and 20 marked the climax and, ironically, the death knell for the old Republican movement, for after 1820, the South began to develop a self-conscious sectionalism. The doctrines and slogans of old Republicanism were adopted by the new Southern sectionalists for their own purposes, while the membership was absorbed into the political movement in behalf of the pres presidential aspirations of William Harris Crawford. That Crawford candidacy is interesting. Again, another interesting part of American history in this book gets into some of that. I love all this stuff. I mean, these are individuals you don't hear about very often. After the election of 1824, the old Republicans were guided by Martin Van Buren in the presidential camp of Andrew Jackson. To Southern conservatives, the basic appeal of Jacksonian democracy was its liberalism, its demand for simplicity and purity in government, and its opposition to governmental chartered monopolies. But it soon became apparent that Jacksonian liberalism was more commercial than agrarian, that it was oriented toward popular democracy rather than pre preservation of the Southern gentry that patronage policies of the president and the nullification controversy alienated a few, including Randolph and Tyler, but others, such as Macon and Ritchie, remained loyal to Jackson. Macon's interesting, and I think Macon, think about Macon, he was opposed to nullification because he said, look, it's just stupid, we should just secede. I mean, this was Macon's position. Nathaniel Macon, again, another interesting character, someone I really like to read about and write about. Riz George concludes, the division of the old Republicans on the issues posed by Jacksonian democracy symbolizes their dual legacy. They kept alive the torch of states' rights and passed it on to the lower South until it was carried into the Civil War and expired. But ironically enough, they also provided the concepts and the slogans for the new industrial liberalism, which triumphed in the Civil War. The, du the duality of, their her of this heritage presents, persists even in the 20th century. The agrarian sentiments of the old Republicans were revived not long ago by the group of Southern intellectuals who combined to produce I'll Take My Standard Who Owns America. The preservation of a particular localism, on the other hand, continues to be an important obstacle to change, both in the defense of racial inequality and the protection of property interests. It remains an important feature of modern conservative thought and its continuing battle against a consolidated government controlled by a mass democracy. This is why this book is so good and why you need to study the old Republicans Look, you go back to that spot, you find the origins of it, and you say, yeah, I mean, this is John Taylor's Thomas Ritchie. It's, it's James Monroe. It's Crawford. Even Van Buren. I mean, these are people. It's Randolph. These are people important. Lee, th that are so essential for understanding of American conservatism and why you should get Norman Risdor's book and read it and digest it. I go back through it quite a bit. I mean, it's fun. Um, it's just a good book. And we need to understand these old Republicans because that's a key to understanding modern American conservatism. And all of it is rooted in something else. It's not, we, we start, well, it's all about slavery. Well, no, it's not. You can, you can point to this. There was deeper issues and more important things that they were worried about than some of these peripheral issues. All those issues would, would be factored in, but their worldview was not created by these things. Their worldview created these issues. So it's interesting how that works. All right.
Hope you enjoyed this week at the Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next week. See you then.